You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. This is our first episode back from our winter break, so from here on out, things are back to normal with a brand new episode every Wednesday. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to www.hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. This week's episode is going to be a little different than usual. Now, I know I promised you the final part in our series on Robert Moses, but I've decided to both spend more time developing the episodes and remove the original three-episode limit I had going in. I want to give you the best possible content I can, so don't worry, it's coming, and I think you're really going to like it. But back to this episode... One of the most challenging parts of doing this show is selecting the subject for each week's episode. I've planned out the stories for probably around 200 episodes that I'll someday hopefully get to do. There is just so much that I want to cover with this show, so many things that can ignite your curiosity to hopefully make you interested in an area you never thought possible. Back in 2017, when I did the first episode of Hidden History on something called the John Birch Society, the show probably had about two listeners. But even then, the idea that I could maybe teach my parents something was truly incredible. The show has come a really long way since then. We've released dozens of episodes on everything from the cargo cults of the South Pacific and the racially charged history of Kodak film to the creation of modern plastic surgery and the cybernetic revolution of 1970s Chile. But every time I run into someone who's listened to the show, they tell me, you know, Ellis, I have a great idea for an episode. A lot of these suggestions are incredibly compelling but for one reason or another, can't be turned into full-length episodes. So this week is part one in what I hope will be an ongoing series. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 22, Vignettes. The first topic I'd like to cover is a pretty unique one, but... Then again, they all are. I want to talk about the governmental structure of the Iroquois Confederacy. There is this perception among many Americans that Native American society lacked many of the traits that Western society sees as desirable. Most notable among these assumptions is the perceived lack of a strong governmental system. This notion could, quite frankly, not be further from the truth. So let's talk about it. But first, the name. The Iroquois didn't call themselves the Iroquois. The Algonquin, their enemies, called them the Iroku, which means rattlesnake. French colonists added the O-I-S ending, and so the Iroquois were born. They actually called themselves the Haudenosaunee, meaning people of the longhouse, so I'll refer to them by their chosen name for the rest of this episode. A common misconception is that the Haudenosaunee are singular people but rather they are a united collection of peoples from five different, yet culturally, politically, and linguistically similar nations. These five nations are, from largest to smallest, Seneca, Mohawk, Cayuga, Onondaga, and Oneida. 
Held together by one international government, their confederacy controlled vast swaths of land stretching throughout the modern American and Canadian Northeast and Midwest. In order to explain their complex political structure, we must go from the bottom up, starting with the Longhouse. Longhouses were the nucleus of Haudenosaunee life. Like modern-day apartment buildings, each was home to up to ten full families living in their own compartmentalized quarters. The Longhouses were controlled by the most powerful figures in Haudenosaunee governance, the Clan Mother. All Haudenosaunee clans were divided into two groups known as Moities. Each of the five nations had two Moities. Haudenosaunee society was a matriarchy, and the clan mother was responsible for politically representing her entire family, which included not only her children, their families, and her grandchildren and their families, but the families of her siblings, children, and grandchildren as well. Clans could easily number in the hundreds. The clan mother had the ability to appoint and unappoint, at will, men to act as her political representatives. There has never, repeat, never, been a single documented case of an appointee disobeying a clan mother. Appointees were known as chiefs, of which there were four kinds, peace chiefs, war chiefs, civil chiefs, and sachems. In order to talk about Haudenosaunee government, we need to talk about the sachems. Fifty representatives from each of the five nations met in centrally located Onondaga territory and made up the Haudenosaunee Council. These representatives were the sachems. Of the fifty, fourteen were Onondaga, ten were Cayuga, nine were Mohawk, and eight were Seneca. Similarly to the clans found in each nation, the five member states were organized into two moities, the senior containing the Mohawk, Onondaga, and Seneca, while the junior contained the Oneida and Cayuga. During meetings of the Haudenosaunee Council, as hosts, the Onondaga played a pivotal role in the legislative process. As the representatives from each of the five nations met in their longhouse, members of the senior moiety would stay on one side of a large central fire, while junior members were on the other. The Onondaga sachems stood on neither side, but rather remained in a centrally located position near the fire, necessitated by their role as keepers of the eternal flame and symbolic of their position in Haudenosaunee government. So how did the council work? Well, when a representative from one of the moities proposed a piece of legislation, that nation's sachems would debate it internally, and it would only pass to the next step if they've reached a consensus. If one was reached, debate would pass to the other nation in the same moiety. If they've reached a different consensus, or none at all, it had to start all over again. But if they successfully reached an agreement, it would pass across the longhouse to the members of the other moiety. Members of the other moiety debated, and if it was the junior moiety, they did so as a single unit. And even though they had to reach a consensus, it didn't have to be the same one as reached by the previous moiety. If this ended up being the case, the Onondaga sachems had to serve as the tiebreaker. But if the two sides reached the same conclusions, the Onondaga could either approve of the legislation or disagree and send the process back to square one. If after this, the member nations sent the same legislation back to the Onondaga, they had no choice but to approve it. The political institutions present within Haudenosaunee society were incredibly self-regulating, yet still allowed governmental flexibility and evolution of the Confederacy as a whole. 
Its inherent legislative elegance and well-balanced power dynamics are unparalleled in modern statesmanship. This robust government is one of the reasons that the Haudenosaunee nation still exists today, and can lay claim to the title of world's oldest democracy. Well, that segment was a lot longer than I expected. In hindsight, I absolutely could have done a full episode on that. But for now, let's move on to our next segment, a nice short one about the great riding librarians of rural Kentucky. At its peak, unemployment during the Great Depression reached 25% nationwide. In rural Kentucky, it hovered closer to 40. Alleviating this crushing rural poverty was one of the goals of Roosevelt's Works Progress Administration. Economic aid to rural southern communities took many forms. In nearby states, the newly established Tennessee Valley Authority provided jobs and electricity for scores of Americans. It was the gold standard in depression relief. But not everything could be the TVA. And in order to combat unemployment, the WPA employed large numbers of smaller programs to provide focused economic benefits. One of these was the Pack Horse Library Initiative, meant to combat both unemployment and illiteracy. These librarians, known among locals as bookwomen, would number over 1,000 by the time the program was defunded in 1943, and each week they would ride between 100 and 120 miles along predetermined routes to deliver reading material to isolated Kentucky communities. The Kentucky bookwomen served not only as librarians, but as ambassadors. They were often local women hired to ride local routes in an attempt to make the residents of the Kentucky mountains more receptive to the program, and by extension, the federal government. The Pack Horse Library Initiative was a resounding success. The roaming librarians distributed untold numbers of donated books and magazines that had been repaired by local libraries. They serviced schools and sometimes read to those, both young and old, who could not do it themselves. During its eight-year tenure, it improved life for hundreds of thousands of Kentuckians. According to Sandra Updike's book, The WPA, Creating Jobs and Hope in the Great Depression, after the program had come to a close, a woman who lived deep in the mountains of Kentucky told the librarian that rode her route that, quote, me and my old man pulls up a table on either side of the bed, lights the lamps and reads and reads. Them books you brought us saved our lives. The following will be the last segment in this week's episode, and it's about something pretty scary the locking mechanisms for the United States' Cold War-era Minuteman nuclear missiles, and how for two decades, every single one of their launch codes was zero, 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 zero. When John F. Kennedy assumed office, nuclear war was at the forefront of the American collective consciousness and the United States was continually expanding its arsenal of nuclear-capable missiles stored at home and abroad. The launch mechanisms found in these missile silos had previously been mechanical, in other words, extremely insecure. 
President Kennedy resolved to fix that with his 1962 signing of the National Security Memorandum 160, which mandated code locks called PALs, or permissive action links, to immediately be installed on the launch mechanisms for each missile. If implemented correctly, it would have massively reduced the risk of an accidental nuclear exchange, seizure of American missiles in unstable foreign countries, and the use of nuclear weapons by a rogue general. However, the permissive action link system was not implemented correctly. By 1982, half of the missiles in Europe still had the original unsafe mechanical locks, and a large amount of the systems that had been implemented hadn't even been activated until 15 years after Kennedy gave the initial order. But there were some instances of PAL systems that were correctly rolled out and activated. PALs could be found in all 50 Minuteman missile silos scattered largely throughout the Midwestern United States. There was a problem, though. Missile silos were under the administrative control of the U.S. Strategic Air Command, and the person in charge of the security upgrades was not a member. In fact, Strategic Air Command was so irritated by the presence of Robert McNamara that they decided that, in order to allow for the fastest possible retaliation to a Soviet attack, they would disregard orders from the White House and set all PAL activation codes to the default. Eight zeros. Not only did this completely nullify the new security measures, but eight zeros was also the standard for the code display. In fact, the launch crews, known as missileers, were specifically instructed to make sure that no digit other than zero had ever been entered into the launch interface. Dr. Bruce Blair brought this issue to the public in 1977, at which point the government was forced to activate the large amount of PALs that lay unused in favor of traditional locks. For two decades when nuclear Armageddon seemed constantly on the horizon, the United States government intentionally sabotaged attempts at upgrading security on their most dangerous national asset so that they could launch a volley of nuclear missiles in an instant. That, to put it softly, is mildly terrifying. But if it makes you feel any better, to this day, the United States military coordinates operations within its missile silos using floppy disks. But that is a story for another time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I know I have. Tune in next week for a brand new episode of Hidden History. If you have any suggestions for a future episode, go to www.hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. This is Ellis Tucci, signing off. <laughs>